Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Hey, Mike, you've heard of this conspiracy theory that humans are actually aliens, right? Well, I once knew a guy with six toes on each foot, so maybe him, but the rest of us, probably not. Yeah, I I don't think so either. But in the future, it looks like human beings could really become extraterrestrial beings. That is, some of us might start being conceived and born in space. Now, our listeners might be wondering why people haven't started doing this already, since trips to space are increasing, both commercial trips and government missions, such as NASA's Artemis Project. But having babies in space is more complicated than you might think. And that's where Spaceborn United comes in. They're already working on solving the puzzle of human procreation in the cosmos. And Lauren, you got me in touch with Dr. Egbert Edelbrook, CEO of a company in the Netherlands called Spaceborn United, so we could learn more about the project. I'm your host, Mike Rogers, and this is Something Off Beats. Tell me about Spaceborn United. Yeah, so we are a research, a space research company. We aim to enable human reproduction in space and meanwhile also improving IVF treatment on Earth. And we achieve this by doing three things. We research the conditions for the different stages of reproduction in space. And the second thing is we translate the outcomes into uh, missions, space missions that enable these stages of reproduction and that includes implementation partners that can bring us to space and back to earth etc and the third thing we do is we translate those research outcomes into uh, medical devices that enable the conception and and embryo development in space so we basically re-engineer existing ivf technology technology that is already uh, being used every day in ivf clinics what's different about reproduction in space compared to reproduction here on Earth? The key two reasons why reproduction in space is different is uh, the radiation level is much uh, more dangerous in space because you're not protected by the the atmosphere, the, the, especially the lowest 10 kilometer of the atmosphere is absorbing a lot of radiation. So that takes away a lot of the hazards. So if you're above that in space, you have much more dangerous radiation. So you have to address that. Here on Earth, annual radiation exposure from cosmic radiation, it's equivalent to around three chest X-rays, is according to the CDC. In space, astronauts are exposed to radiation equivalent to about 150 up to 6,000 chest X-rays. And the second big thing is, is the difference in gravity. Everybody thinks in space you're floating. Well, that could be if you are orbiting the Earth or the Moon or Mars, you're constantly falling, so you're, you experience microgravity and you're floating. But if you're on Mars or on the Moon, you, you do experience some gravity. You don't, you're not floating anymore. But the gravity is different. On Mars, it's only about 39% of what people are used to on Earth. 
So that is different for the body. In, in microgravity, it's much more different. It's much more problematic. All the fluids in, in our body is used to be uh, um, pulled to, to your feet, basically, because of the gravity. And if you're in microgravity floating around, the body fluids will more uh, be in the middle of your body, causing, yeah, your, your body is not used to that. So that is also causing uh, problems. Another another. Uh, other biological processes are being disturbed by that. Why the focus on reproduction in space? Why not just living in space in general? But if we want to become a multiplanetary species, then we need to realize uh, independent human settlements on other planets. And that would that would include learning how to reproduce on the other planets. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. What would you say is the most likely scenario that could lead to humans living in space? Yeah, well, a lot of these, um, basically all space agencies like NASA and ESA, they are already preparing human settlements uh, on the moon and also on Mars for decades. So they're, they're, they're not just planning, they're fully in preparation. Uh, also, some commercial um, organizations, of course, like SpaceX, but also Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic, a few others. So it's, it's already being prepared. But also, if you look at what, what drives humanity to, to expand our existence in space, our presence in space. I'm more than a little freaked out about the idea of traveling to space myself. Definitely not trying to get a ticket for one of those commercial missions. I do love Star Wars, though, and I can't help but be intrigued with the idea of a multi-planetary species and maybe going to work in a starfighter one day. How about you? Not unless they can do something about the flight times. I flew to New Zealand earlier this year. That was 15 hours and it nearly killed me. So I can't imagine a flight to Mars or even the moon. Yeah, imagine the jet lag. I also have to ask, do you remember the moon landing? And if you do, did you imagine we would be talking about setting up shop there in your lifetime? It's an interesting question. If you think back to JFK in the early 60s when he first announced the goal of landing on the moon, did anyone at that time really think that would happen? Probably not, but it did. So, sure, if we can fly there, why can't we do it again and bring along some building supplies? Even growing up in the 90s, though, I only imagined astronauts going to space. Outside this Disney Channel movie, Xenon, which was about a community that lived on a space station. Did your daughters ever watch those movies, the Xenon movies? I still have a song from one of them stuck in my head. No, no Xenon. That, that <laughs> one is not familiar. But I am an expert on SpongeBob and Jimmy Neutron. To your point, though, it does seem like we're going to be scrolling past photo albums of our friends' trip to space any day now. There are also these commercial motives next to the political motives. And, and I mean, there, there used to be a space race between just the U.S. and the Russians, basically. And now the new space race includes all the other uh, nations and, and Europe as a group and Australia and Canada and Japan and China, of course, and some upcoming space nations in United Arab Emirates. Uh, so they all would like to claim something unique in space, like uh, being able to say, hey, we, we, we enabled uh, the first uh, human baby conceived in space. Space tourism actually began more than 20 years ago. 
In recent years, figures like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson kicked off a new space race and more investment into civilian space launches. And all three of those men are billionaires, and the prices for a commercial space adventure does tend to limit that activity to others in their tax bracket. But it's really only just starting. There's uh, space tourism uh, starting to further develop. So there are space hotels being developed. The International Space Station is about to retire. So there are several new space stations being developed, also by China. And also the, the Artemis space program includes sending many astronauts to the moon, to the surface of the moon, but also orbiting the moon to prepare for missions to Mars and other missions. Nowadays, there's like a permanent presence in space uh, with a maximum of, of, of maybe six, seven people at a time. But that will continue to, to increase really rapidly. Very soon, it will be 10 times as many and it keeps doubling every year, probably. As far as humans setting up colonies in space, what to you is more likely? Would it be Mars? Would it be the moon or someplace else? Um, the, the moon is a, is a logical first step because it's clo It's fair, so much closer to Earth. The, tr this, the traveling time is only like uh, three or four days. And, and, and Mars is, uh, and you can travel like every day in the week, every day in the year to the moon. Basically, if the weather is good enough, but traveling to Mars is only feasible once every 20, 26 months. The, the orbits of Mars and Earth, they are different. So there's only one month every 26 months that it's close enough to, to actually uh, make the traveling feasible. So that's a big um, extra challenge. And also the traveling time is not three days, it's uh, more likely uh, seven months with the current technology. So the moon is a much easier first step. But getting back to Spaceborne United's mission, what have you learned so far about what it might take for human reproduction to happen on, for example, a colony on the moon? We have to distinguish uh, natural reproduction and assisted reproduction. Spaceborne is focusing on assisted reproductive technologies. So we're uh, taking basically, well, uh, having intercourse out of the equation for now. We want to enable, we, we're definitely working towards enabling natural reproduction eventually. But because that is causing a lot of medical problems for now, we first have to learn more about how we can prevent this. And we can do that by using assisted reproductive technologies. So similar to on Earth, you have um, assisted conception with IVF um, outside of the natural womb to create embryos, etc. So well, IVF is, is easier and it makes more sense to start, but could we overcome these challenges and eventually get to a point where we reproduce the old-fashioned way in space? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, a lot, a lot of technologies uh, uh, helpful to to protect against uh, too much radiation. Uh, for us, it's uh, hardly um, a problem actually because we have relatively short missions because we are focusing on the first stage of reproduction, uh, so the conception and the first five days of embryo development. And we, we selected a specific orbit around the Earth at a certain altitude. I can share that it's 230 kilometers, where the radiation levels will stay well under the norms that the medical society, uh, medical uh, sector defined for 
developing embryos in space. Would the pregnancies then take place in space or on another celestial body? We need to learn a lot more about how much gravity is, is necessary for a healthy pregnancy period. It's very likely that microgravity will be out of the question. That's absolutely unhealthy. But we don't know if the Martian gravity environment could be sufficient. It is a big difference from the Earth gravity, but it, it, it just might be enough. The moon's gravity is only one-sixth, only 16%. That's very likely to still be insufficient. So if you can create artificial gravity by a rotating big wheel on a space station, then you can you, you can address this gravity problem or, or if you are on a planet where there's enough gravity. So it, it can be addressed. I don't have kids and my knowledge of pregnancy, like my knowledge of space, mostly comes from movies and TV. Those fake pregnancies usually include morning sickness, which seems like it would be awful on a planet with weaker gravity than ours. Little messy. Uh, you actually have kids, Mike. How do you think pregnancy in space would work? I think it would definitely make it easier during the third trimester, or as I call it, the waddling phase. Because you just, <laughs> you'd float right through it. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> I just this is fascinating. I, I never realized that reproduction could be a problem in space. Yeah, I was. Uh, I have a tendency to say it's not rocket science, but maybe it is. Uh, but it's it's uh, the challenges seem um, we can overcome those challenges. We can address them. It just takes time to take a step by step approach and yeah, take one stage of reproduction at a time. Uh, I mean, uh, we we have a very small like a mini lab small shoebox size five six kilogram mini lab mm -hmm. uh, that we take into space and the costs to take uh, these uh, devices into space are dropping every year is it possible that this research could affect uh, reproduction here on earth and lead to advances in that well it's uh, we have very strong expectations about that we have very specific expectations that it will that uh, doing ivf in space will result in, 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 in research outcomes that can be translated into uh, improving IVF treatment on Earth and, and improve the success rates specifically. So we, uh, and, and we can, so we we're gonna prove that um, because yeah, there's a, there's a big international trend that women want to focus more on, on their careers first before starting a family. So, but their biology is not really helpful. Um, so they will be uh, relying more and more on assisted reproductive technology or uh, fertility treatments. So we're very happy that we're also contributing to, to this trend and empowering women to have careers in that way. What is the next step then? What's next in your research? Um, well, you, you cannot just start with, with um, uh, um, doing experiments with, with uh, human reproductive cells and human embryos, uh, that there's good reasons and all these ethical committees that that um, that, that follow, follow your steps and you have to convince them that you're doing it in a very sound, scientifically and ethically uh, sound way. So we start with, with animal cells, animal um, reproductive cells, sperm cells and oocytes. And we proved that our technology is working. We proved that the mouse pups 
that result from these uh, experiments. Uh, we have to prove that they are healthy, they are not affected in a negative way, and then we can uh, transition towards working with human reproductive cells. And we expect we will be able to enable the very first human embryo conceived in space, in history, basically, uh, in about five to six years. Let me ask you this. In conducting this research and running this company, do you, do you ever stop sometimes and think to yourself, I really could be changing the future? Yeah, it is. I mean, we're very lucky to, to have all conversations with people like you and other media uh, researchers and other scientists, and we, we embrace all these dialogues. But we are many times, um, yeah, basically confronted with the responsibility that we seem to have that we might might be causing a, a small step in human evolution the very first human baby conceived in space that is a big thing and and for that reason we are called spaceborn united we don't want this to be a rich people white rich people western people thing we want this to be as inclusive as possible and involve all the regions and races and religious uh, religions as possible I get the feeling that if we ever do establish a space colony and it's in your lifetime, you're going to be right at the front of the line to get on that uh, spacecraft. I certainly hope so. I'm Mike Rogers. Thanks for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode written and produced by Lauren Barry and Chris Blake. Audio editing by Bree Flores. Original music by Myron Kaplan and editorial support from Cooper Mall. Now to keep listening, subscribe to us on the Odyssey app, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know about any offbeat stories that you've heard of that you think we should cover. Send them to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.